Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and co-hosting with me today is Angelica Ortiz. You hey. do lots of different things. Chiropractor yeah. in training, almost there. New doula. And uh, you're the editor of the Informed Pregnancy blog. Mm-hmm. And a social media guru. Yeah. All the above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is me. Uh, thanks for being here. And today's guest is Dr. Emiliano Chavira. Hello. He is an OBGYN and MFM. What's an MFM? Uh, that stands for maternal fetal medicine. So it's uh, it's like an OBGYN, but I don't do much GYN. Pretty much it's all pregnancy. and You're all OB all the time? All OB all the time. Wow. It's, uh, it tends to be pregnancies that have some kind of special issue. Uh, and that could be the mom. It could be the baby. So it's, it tends to be something other than a you know normal uncomplicated pregnancy. Is what, what people would refer to as high risk. Yeah, but I you don't like the term. I hate the term. Okay. <laughs> what do you prefer? You, you know, I, I like maternal fetal medicine. Um, people also uh, refer to us as perinatologists, although most that. people are very confused by that term and they don't they don't know what it is. It is confusing. Uh, when I say high risk pregnancy, then they they. They kind of the light bulb clicks and they sort of know what I'm talking about, but um, I, I just don't like it because it's kind of a scary sounding term and it's very poorly defined and high risk. You know that word high; it's kind of subjective. Like, yeah. what exactly is yeah. high? That's mm-hmm. a negative connotation. Yeah, very much so. So I, I, I don't like that term, but I pregnancies that would benefit from some more closer monitoring. Maybe dot com. Maybe. <laughs> or maybe just a, a, a little bit of conversation to start off with. That sounds fair. And to become an MFM, so first you do OBGYN training and then you specialize? Yeah, well, okay, so so first is kindergarten <laughs> and then just kidding. Yeah, you. so after medical school, you do your, your OBGYN residency and uh, that's four years. And at that point, you could stop and practice as a general OB-GYN or you continue training, which is what I did. And you do a, what's called a fellowship mm-hmm. in maternal fetal medicine. That was another three years. And it's really heavily focused on a lot of ultrasound. So we're ultrasounding the babies and then also, um, you know, taking care of moms with special medical conditions and so forth. And uh, Is it yeah. a lot of ultrasound to look for things that, that are beyond the average or is it a more advanced ultrasound meaning is it the machine that's more advanced or is it your observations well it's both i mean we uh you know the ultrasound technology keeps advancing and they keep inventing new stuff and so i'm waiting for the iphone app we have to (laughs) right oh that would be so great yeah um but also we we have um you know special skills above and beyond what a general OB-GYN might do because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them do ultrasound. And also we above and beyond what a radiologist might do because they radiologists also do a lot of OB ultrasound. So it's, it's but I would say when it comes to pregnancy, we're the, the ultimate specialists in pregnancy ultrasound. Neat. Today we have a topic that was uh, requested by a listener, an Informed Pregnancy Podcast listener, and the topic is preterm labor. So it sounds like when there is a preterm labor concern or issue, is that one of the things that falls under perinatology? That's kind of a yes and no. I mean, I I, I think uh, preterm labor, it's a very common 
uh, obstetric complication. Uh, roughly about 10% of babies will be born before 37 weeks. That's the definition of preterm. So 37 and weeks is term? 37 is term. Okay. Um, and there are various stages to term. Yeah, there's some new definitions about that. So, uh, so now between 37 and 39 weeks is called early term. And 39 to 41 is considered full term. And then 41 to 42 is late term. Oh, goodness. Not and late term. God beyond forbid. 42 is post term. <laughs> Look at all those terms. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Terminology. So, yeah, anything less than 37 weeks is, uh, is uh, technically defined as preterm. Um, what was I saying? That's about 10% of pregnancies. And it's kind of, that's sort of, I think, a kind of bread and butter obstetric um, issue that a general OB-GYN is perfectly well equipped to, um, you know, to take care of and handle. But uh, it is becoming very common for OBs to call an MFM in. So I, sometimes they involve us, but there's not really anything special we would do above and beyond what a or general OB-GYN OB -GYN might do. You know, you're an int I, I sort of feel compelled to say this to the audience. You're an interesting... Uh, mix because you are an OBGYN medical doctor. You're a MFM, which we already described what that is. But you're also sort of very holistically minded. Yeah, that's true. You don't come across very often. I, in general, find MFMs to go the other way, meaning to some degree your client is, is the baby and you don't really have so much access to the baby. And I sort of feel like MFMs like to get the baby out no matter what. But you're not in that uh, boat per se. Yeah, Must be lonely. I mean, you're, you're, you're right. I, I am sort of a, a unique practitioner, I guess. A lot of MFMs really move into consultation-only type of practice, and they don't do deliveries. Mm -hmm. So that's not universally true, but it's very common. Uh, but I've just always loved the labor and delivery, and I've just kept it up and kept my feet in that realm. And um, it, something happened to me in the last five, 10 years where I've kind of gravitated more and more toward the philosophy of midwives. So I almost, when I get called an OB these days, I I almost don't relate to that term anymore. <laughs> I kind of feel almost more like a midwife slash MFM. You're a maternal fetal midwife. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a new term, that's new category. Good um, so preterm labor then is defined as uh, labor that starts before 37 weeks. And I, I presume that the further along that you are closer to 37 weeks, the less of an issue that becomes. Totally correct, yeah. So what's, what's the earliest that somebody can deliver and still expect the baby to be okay? So there is not a, um, there's not a magic line. <laughs> where you cross that I would make that statement. You can expect the baby to be okay. It's more oh. of a continuum. Okay. So one one kind of line that, that uh, has existed for the last few decades is about 24 weeks, and we call this the line of viability, mm -hmm. meaning if you deliver less earlier than the 24 weeks, there's there, there's kind of no real hope. The, the, uh, even the uh, the most skilled neonatologist in the highest level – NICU is not going to be able to save that baby. And this 24-week line, this is, it's a very blurry line. And there, there is you know, some uh, chance of survival in the 23-week window. So it's not a hard and fast line. But let's just say for simplicity's sake, 
24 weeks is the line of viability. Um, there's probably something like a 50-50 chance of survival if you deliver it 24 weeks. And that's, you know, plus minus. Mm-hmm. Um, well, even the number of weeks is not an exact science. True. Yeah, yeah. So. It's, uh, it's, an, it's an estimate. And, mm. and uh, depending on how early you started in their pregnancy, the, that, that estimate varies in precision, right? Mm-hmm. But so every week that passes by, the chance that the baby's going to make it goes up, and it goes up pretty quickly. So by the time we hit 28 weeks, we're, we're pretty well over 90% survival. So that's probably the very highest risk window in which to deliver is that like 24 to 28-week month. And um, if you stretch the pregnancy out for one additional month and you get out to like 32, 34 weeks. You know, we still prefer a baby not to be born at that time, but the survival really is over 99%. And, you know, the the large bulk of those babies do really well. Mm-hmm. Good. I have so many questions, and some of them are, f- are from this listener, but also my own questions. So obviously when you – well, let's start with – risk factors for preterm labor. Mm-hmm. Are there people who are greater at risk for preterm labor? And if so, what are those factors? Yeah, there. you know, there's different types of preterm births. And so we, we, we break them up into a couple of categories. So one is what's called iatrogenic. So that word means it's caused by the physicians. I mean, you weren't, you weren't really in labor. You were not going to deliver the baby. But we have decided to deliver the baby early because something going on. So, for example, one reason might be uh, the baby's really not growing well mm-hmm. and is really struggling. And that there's certain factors that make you think this baby, if we leave it in utero, may pass away at some point. So we make the decision to go ahead and do the delivery. Or let's say the mom is developing preeclampsia, which is a, a condition where she's starting to get sick from the pregnancy, blood pressure's going up really high. Uh, and there can be other things that go along with that, you know, like kidney failure and swelling of the liver and all these things. So a mild case of preeclampsia, we might follow that mom very closely and see how far we could stretch out the pregnancy, try mm-hmm. to make it to term and deliver. But if the preeclampsia starts becoming very severe, this is now turning into a, a life-threatening situation. More so, for the mother than the baby. But well, for both because if you if know the mother goes, that, the baby goes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that might be another reason for an iatrogenic preterm birth. Like it's not that she's in labor, but we're saying it's time to cut this pregnancy short and deliver the baby. So that's kind of one category, and um, you know, moms that. There are certain moms that have a slightly elevated risk of that compared to the general population. Like in in general, we see preeclampsia maybe like five to ten percent of pregnancies, some, something in that neighborhood. Um, so moms, as they get older, the the incidence starts to climb. Moms that are very young, like teenagers, uh, for some reason have a higher risk of preeclampsia. First birth is a risk factor. Uh, or first pregnancy, I should say. For preeclampsia? For preeclampsia. So that means that people who have it are not necessarily likely to have it again in a subsequent pregnancy? The, if if you're having your second pregnancy uh, without a history of preeclampsia, you are less likely to get it than women who are having their first pregnancy. First pregnancy. Mm-hmm. If you've had it before, that actually is a risk factor. For having it again. For having it again. Okay. Although, um, you know, this gets back to this high-risk pregnancy issue if you've had it before, you're still more likely to not get it 
in your next pregnancy. In other words, like we said, there's a baseline 5 to 10% risk, right? So let's say your risk is double that, 10 to 20%. Mm-hmm. That makes you a high-risk person. But if you flip that around, you've got an 80, 90% chance. chance of not getting it. So the most likely thing is that you're not going to get it. Right. Um, Even if you've had it before. Right. And then women with certain medical complications have a higher chance of getting preeclampsia. So things like hypertension, maybe diabetes, lupus, kidney disease is a pretty powerful risk factor for getting preeclampsia. So there's very th- various things um, What are the signs of it that you would notice at home? Uh, So a lot of moms will get preeclampsia and have no symptoms. So that's why it is important to go to the prenatal visits. And one of the things they check for is preeclampsia. They they check your blood pressure and they check your urine to see if you're uh, starting to leak uh, protein into the urine. Uh, Some moms will get symptoms and there's kind of like four things. So one is a persistent headache that won't go away. Mm. Um, uh, then you might get visual symptoms. So these could be things like you're seeing spots, you're seeing flashing lights, and not a quick thing where like you stand up from the sofa and you get woozy for a moment, <laughs> a second, but, yeah. but like a, a, an ongoing persistent kind of symptom. Uh, from liver swelling, you might have some pain or nausea or discomfort in the upper abdomen. Uh, and, then, and then some women will notice... Um, sudden onset of swelling and not so much in the feet because that can be really normal in pregnancy but more like hands and face Mm. which is a little bit less typical um, in pregnancy so all of a sudden symptoms like that develop either you let your doctor know or you just swing by the hospital where you're planning to deliver for them to check you out I remember seeing someone the worst case that I remember seeing just in the office I'm like this doesn't look right but she looked very ill Mm-hmm. And it wasn't preeclampsia; it was eclampsia. She just well, she looked very flu-like. She just looked extremely uncomfortable. And then, you know, I think they actually, if I remember correctly, they they just went right right to cesarean. She was close to the end, but not maybe thirty-seven weeks. Yeah, yeah. So that so that's the the one category of iatrogenic preterm birth. The other category is what we refer to as spontaneous. Uh, preterm labor, which probably is mostly what you're talking about today, where, um, you know, you're, you're kind of planning and hoping everything's going to be normal. And one day before it's time, you start contracting and you go into labor and, and deliver the baby. And it, it, it happens sort of through two mechanisms. One is you, you start contracting and your cervix dilates and you go into labor. The other is the bag of water may pop. Uh, you know, before anything else has happened, that's sort of the first sign or symptom is you're your, your leaking amniotic fluid. I have questions about both of those. Sure. Because it's fairly normal to have some contractions during mm-hmm. pregnancy mm-hmm. that are not labor. How do you differentiate those contractions that are Braxton Hicks-like contractions versus maybe Pre-term this is labor later. even though I'm not at 37 yeah. weeks? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so... Most of the time, uh, that's a pretty easy distinction. Um, Braxton Hicks will not be regular. You may have a handful during the day, um, or you may have sort of a brief run of them for an hour or so, and then they kind of calm down and, and, and disappear. Um, so they're, they're not regular, and they're not accelerating and escalating. 
So if you get into a pattern where the contractions are starting to come one after the other, like they're every 10 minutes and they're every seven and they're every five and they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger, that's more concerning that that might be preterm labor. Ultimately, there's no way that you can count them out and distinguish between Braxton Hicks and and true preterm labor. Um, the, the, The ultimate way you're going to make this distinction as if the cervix is dilating or not. Mm-hmm. So if the cervix is not dilating, then you're not in labor. And my phone can't tell me that either yet. <laughs> right. So they, they're going to they're gonna have to uh, invent some kind of adapter before we can do that. I did see that there is uh, – did you see the monitor, the dilation monitor? No. It's like two electrodes that are placed in. Uh, near the cervix, and it just uh, like Bluetooths out. What no, but I did see uh, they've they've invented a new kind of speculum that's like a little mini camera, so that you don't have to use the big metal speculum device. You oh, just wow. kind of insert this tube, and it's used for a different purpose. They're they're trying to visualize the cervix, looking for like cervical dysplasia and these precursors to cervical cancer. But just because you brought it up, it made me think uh, you could actually look at the cervix and. And see, what's happening. and see what's happening. Wow, it's, it's the technology is coming. I bet Angelica is yeah. going to develop cool stuff like that. <laughs> it's the new generation coming up. It is. Um, okay, so you were saying the difference between uh, Braxton Hicks and, and what might be labor contractions. Yeah, so you know, based sure, on their pattern, you can't really tell a hundred percent. You would if 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 it seems like they're becoming regular and stronger, then I think it's more. It's it it may be that you're actually in preterm labor, and that's the time you would go see whoever your provider is, you know, uh, whether that's you know midwife or family practice or OB or whoever it is, and probably they're going to check your cervix and use that to distinguish whether you're really in labor or not. On the second half of of this podcast, because I have so many questions I want to jump to, but I sort of want to make sense of it all for listeners, I'm going to talk about the what do we do in these scenarios, mm-hmm. okay? But uh, for now, the other thing you said is if your water breaks, and there too, it's not always 100% clear. Did I just pee a little bit? Because sometimes the water breaks with a big gush, and sometimes there's little trickles. Absolutely. So any way to, to sort of tell, is that my water? Well, there really isn't. Um a lot of times during pregnancy, you'll, there'll be a little bit of a discharge uh, kind of on a daily basis that can be totally normal. So if you you know, don't have any particular discomfort or like itching or burning or something's bothering you and there's not a, uh, you know, a real intense odor, that's probably a normal discharge of pregnancy. So if it's been going on the whole pregnancy and there's kind of nothing different about it today... Uh, I think so. Most women, I think, will get used to that. There's, there's sort of, they have a sense of what their discharge is. Does that normal discharge tend to have a color or a description that goes with it? It's, or it, it can, can be, be either clear or whitish, mm-hmm. or maybe even a real, real faint yellow. Okay. Um, it differs for every woman, right? I think every it's different for every different... woman. You know, there was one. There was one OB who. Uh, uh, now this is in non-pregnancy. He he did a study on um, how do we characterize normal healthy vaginal discharge. <laughs> and he got six GYN textbooks and found that the description of the vaginal discharge was different in every single textbook. Wow. So uh, I think that kind of makes the point that you just said that you know, every, everyone's different. There is some normal variation. I imagine even within a pregnancy, she can have yeah. a But just noticing what's normal for you and being able yeah. to relate that to how you yeah. are in pregnancy. So I think, if, you know, if you're if you kind of have a sense of what you're 
the vaginal discharge has been like, and then all of a sudden there's something more or different that might need to be investigated. Mm -hmm. Or if you've been dry the whole pregnancy and then all of a sudden you're having a little bit of discharge, that could be a lot of things. It could, it could be, it could just be vaginal discharge. It could be, um, it could be cervical mucus. Maybe if you've had intercourse recently, it could be sperm coming out. It could be urine or it could be, um, that am- that the ba- the the amniotic bag has fluid. sprung a little leak and you're leaking amniotic fluid. There's not really a way at this point that I think you can tell at home. That probably just requires an evaluation. There's a few tests that they do to distinguish amniotic fluid from other fluids. What kind of tests? Oh, you mean like chemical tests? Mm-hmm. Or getting samples? Right. Yeah. So the, historically, um, there were three things. One is you look to see if there's actually fluid draining out of the cervix and there's a little pool of fluid accumulating in the vagina. Uh, then there's a pH test. So they have a little stick and basically it's called nitrazine. Okay. And based on the pH of the amniotic fluid, it turns from yellow to blue and that's a, a clue. Even if you're having a girl? Just kidding. <laughs> okay. yeah, then it, <laughs> in those cases, it turns leopard print. <laughs> <I see. Ooh. laughs> yeah. um, so and then uh, and then one uh, final test is a smear a little bit of fluid on a on a slide and when it dries these crystal forms mm, the crystals from yeah the it's actually uh, it's actually it's actually really beautiful it's cool and to look you, at. you look for that uh, under the microscope nowadays they're uh, they've invented some more advanced chemical tests based on you know certain substances that you would not expect to be in the vagina if the membranes hadn't ruptured mm-hmm. so there are some advances but they're um, not we can't do them at home. Not yet. Okay, Coming they may soon. come. Sure. Yeah. So those are the two. Those are the two signs that you might be experiencing preterm labor if your contractions are picking up sort of into a labor pattern, or if you might have if your water might have broken, and they don't always happen at the same time. Yeah, <clears throat> and you know one other more a more kind of subtle thing is uh, if the baby comes bleeding. Out. Oh. oh, yeah. No, baby coming out would be. Um, it's a sign. Yeah, that's definitely a sign. Yeah. What kind of bleeding? Bleeding or spotting? Yeah, I was just about so to. That, so that can vary, right? It, it can be anything from you notice a little bit of spotting when you wipe, um, all the way up to you know bleeding like a period or or heavier, and that can come from different sources. It could come from the cervix dilating. Sometimes you bleed a little bit as the cervix is opening. Uh, it could be from a little bit of separation between the placenta and the uterus. You know, mm. it kind of just peels off the uterine wall a little bit. So it can it can come from different um, sources, and that doesn't always mean you're in labor, but that could be another potential early sign. So, so if you see bleeding, is it always something to go check out? I think it's probably always something to communicate with your. Provider, because you just got to put it in context of everything else. You know your other symptoms, what gestational age you are, what your prior OB history is. Mm-hmm. So you know, bleeding in pregnancy is is tremendously common. We we uh, you know we have women telling us about this all the time, and the the large majority of the time, everything is fine. Mm-hmm. But but That's I would but know. I would it's say reassuring. yeah. Um, so it's it's not a thing to freak out about, but I think it's something you always want to. Um, you know, just run by your provider. Are there things that put a woman at greater risk for these types of preterm labor, for starting contractions or for her water breaking? We are learning a lot about that, and I don't think we have a good answer um, uh, to that question yet. There's, you know, one one category of, of things is um, 
uh, organisms that live in your body and different um, bacteria. And it's been known for a long time that uh, that some women who have preterm birth, it's related to bacteria that are in the amniotic fluid or in the uterine cavity or environment. And the earlier the preterm birth, the more likely you are to find bacteria in the amniotic fluid. So it's always known that this is one of the causes. Mm-hmm. It's always been known. Um, but I are... I think our understanding about this is beginning to advance because we used to have very simplistic ideas about sterility of the intrauterine environment. And now we're realizing there's organisms everywhere. There are organisms in the placenta and they, the population of bacteria or bugs, we refer to this as a, as a microbiome. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, there are studies looking at the microbiome in the mouth the microbiome that lives in the vagina, the microbiome that lives in the gut, the microbiome that lives in the placenta. Hmm. Um, And uh, we're we're getting more and more clues about how these population of organisms may feed into this preterm birth pathway. But we're not at a place where I think we get it all. We're, you know, we're kind of learning about this. And unfortunately, there's not a test that you can do where you go, you know, to... Swap. Your uh, provider's <laughs> office, and they do the test, and they say, yes, you are at risk for a preterm birth or, or are going to have one. We don't really have that yet. So the only thing we really have at this point um, are things like if if your cervix is checked with ultrasound early in the pregnancy, somewhere between 20 to 24 weeks, and it's found to be short, mm-hmm. that's a risk factor for preterm birth. What does that mean, short? So... <clears throat> the cervix is like a little tube, right? And you can you can measure from the inside, which is you know leading into the uterus, to the outside, which is leading into the vagina. Mm-hmm. And you can you can see it with ultra with a vaginal ultrasound. That's much more accurate than doing an ultrasound where you're you're holding the, the probe on the belly. You can measure it that way, but it really is very inaccurate to measure that way. So you do it with a vaginal ultrasound. And when you measure how long it is, on average, at 20 to 24 weeks, it's probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to 4 centimeters. If it's less than 2.5, that's generally the definition of a short cervix. Mm -hmm. So that does not mean you're going to have a preterm birth. Many women with a a cervix less than 2.5 and even quite shorter than that will go on to have a full-term birth. But your chances of having a preterm birth is higher than that woman who's got like a four centimeter cervical length. So, I mean, you're saying long or short, but it, is it thickness? Or height, length. What what creates the length of the cervix? I, so I think this is usually the, the term that people use to refer to this is effacement. Okay. Okay. Um, let me think of an, of, an, of an analogy. Let's say, imagine you're putting on a turtleneck sweater. Okay. <laughs> okay. So as you put your head into the sweater, be- before your head is going through the neck, mm-hmm. the, the turtleneck part is long. So that's like a long cervix. Okay. Right? Now, as you start to push your head through the turtleneck, you can almost imagine that's like the baby's head going through the mom's cervix. Okay. So the the lower part of the turtleneck starts to stretch over your head. Yes. And then the turtle part of the turtleneck oh, is short. getting shorter oh, and shorter. I see what you're saying. So as the head pushes down into it, it will short. Yeah. It'll now, shorten. I don't think it happens because the fetal head is pushing through it. That's, but, it but that's your but, analogy. But that's the analogy, okay. right? So you can sort of visually 
<laughs> imagine the cervix getting shorter. I'm like, going to envision cervical length every time I put a cervical <laughs> <neck> on <down. laughs> uh, All right. This is really interesting and I think helpful information. We're going to take a quick commercial break and be right back with Dr. Emiliano Chivira. Hey, everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. L.A. Berlin. Today's co-host, Angelica Ortiz, and our guest, maternal fetal midwife, Dr. Emiliano Javier. Welcome back. <laughs> I love it. Um, what about lifestyle habits? We're talking about preterm labor. Mm-hmm. Do lifestyle things lead to, uh, you know, like smoking or drinking or drugs? They always tell you not to or do stress. it. Or stress. Mm. Great. Yeah, I think there are um, there are a lot of things that have been shown to influence preterm birth. So uh, smoking, I think, is one. And the, the the mechanism through which that happens really is abruption. The chance of placental separation from the uterine wall is higher in, in, in women who smoke during pregnancy. And there's a dose-response relationship, meaning the more you smoke, the higher the, the chance of the something like this going to happen. Yeah. Pull so off. even if you can't quit completely smoking, even cutting down um, is a value. Smoking yeah. tobacco? Yeah, I mean, primarily I'm talking about tobacco. I mean, pe- people are talking a lot about marijuana these days. Right. And uh, the, the I mean, I think the issue with smoking is that whatever chemical you're specifically talking about, whether it be tobacco or marijuana, mm-hmm. that's only one thing that's in the smoke. So all all the com- you know all the combustion products, you're really breathing in hundreds of different chemicals. Yeah. So. I don't know that it matters so much what you're smoking as much as the fact that you're you are smoking, smoking and just yeah breathing Although a bunch vaping, of stuff into vaping your lungs. the uh, vaping the bubble gum yeah <laughs> no people do yeah so smoking certainly and um, you know there's certain drugs that are associated with preterm birth so these would be like things like cocaine methamphetamines and it might be through a similar mechanism through um, um, placental abruption placental abruption. Um, I think uh, yeah, stress has been associated with uh, preterm birth, and I'm always really a little bit reluctant to say that because you know every you know stress is part of life, and everybody's stressed, and right. now you're like, oh my god, now I'm stressed that I'm stressed, and my stress is hurting the baby. Um, but, but you know, I, I think it is valuable to try to um, figure out how to manage stress a little bit, and it's. I mean, it's good for pregnancy, and it's good for the baby, and it's good for life in general. Definitely. Um, I think disordered sleep 
is an is an issue that we have not paid a lot of attention to, but is probably important. You know, there's some hormonal cycles that happen in sync with um, the the diurnal cycle that you know day and night. And when you don't sleep well, it sort of messes these things up, and it causes actually a lot of health problems. It can cause weight gain, and it can cause hypertension, uh, high blood pressure, and uh, it can. There's you know, some studies coming out now that it can have impacts on um, on pregnancy, like gestational diabetes and potentially you mm. know preterm birth. So healthy sleep is going to be important. What about nutritional deficiencies? Yeah. Um, Good question. Well, even before you get to specific nutritional deficiencies, um, skipping breakfast has been shown to be a risk factor for preterm birth. So it's very important to have, you know, your well-balanced diet and eating meals regularly. For a pregnant woman to spend a a very prolonged period without a meal is generally um, something to be avoided. Now, whether there are any specific nutritional deficiencies that put you at risk for preterm birth, I'm... I'm not sure about that. Have you? No, I was just curious, you know, if someone, like, didn't know they were pregnant. You know, some women don't know until, like, even the second trimester. Like, what if they weren't taking yeah. their prenatal vitamins? Or, or eating, right. Or eating, or eating breakfast. I skip yeah. breakfast all the time. Yeah, I never skip breakfast. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about, you mentioned uh, gestational diabetes. And um, I know the obese that we work with they really like to have babies out early when mom has gestational diabetes or mm-hmm. diabetes in general and uh, also hypertension which also you mentioned so it almost seems like those two are risk factors for preterm labor but also for some reason we want to get them out early well when you say early not preterm not no 39 weeks but somewhere. yeah so full term 39 weeks and 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 that's just because um in all pregnancies, in the very last weeks of, of, of pregnancy, there's a very small risk, and I emphasize very small risk, of some really serious complications, the worst of which probably being is, you know, just the baby passing away suddenly in utero. Mm-hmm. So that is something that it doesn't happen often, but when it does, obviously it's it's tremendously devastating and, sure. you know, life-altering. Uh, if you have hypertension or diabetes, the chance of something like that happen happening in your pregnancy is is a little bit higher. Um, and this gets back again to our discussion of high risk. So let's say uh, in the population in general, the risk of fetal demise at term is maybe like a couple per thousand. So I've seen various studies in diabetes trying to to quantify how much higher the risk is, and maybe it's something like three times higher. So let's say we're talking about six women out of a thousand will, you know, suffer a complication like this. So it's not that. So it's still most women are not going to, you know, have something horrible like that happen during during their pregnancy. But right. on that basis, that's the rationale for, you know, at thirty nine weeks, the baby's good and well, mature, and let's just go ahead and induce deliver now. Yeah, is that why so many people are uh, like scared to pass the forty week mark? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I I you know most people most people and this is includes even within the birth world people who are taking care of pregnant women this could be the physicians it could be the labor and delivery nurses they don't necessarily know these numbers. Right. They just sort of know the concept that there's some kind of higher risk and I think uh, sometimes internally they just may feel that the risk is much much higher than it actually is mm-hmm. and th- and then 
they play the so they personally have a lot of fear about these kind of scenarios and then they kind of translate that to the patient and characterize staying pregnant beyond 39 or beyond 40 weeks as something really really dangerous when you know there is a little risk but I think it's always important to put it into perspective Mm -hmm. Um, you talked about a couple of different causes of preterm labor one of which was iatrogenic so if, if there's a medical reason to put you into well, to get your baby out early before term. Um, if you have to do that, right, if if you have to get a baby out early, are there things that we can do to improve the the outcome for the mother and baby before we get the baby out? Absolutely. And this applies to all preterm births. So um, in, in iatrogenic preterm births or spontaneous, if you're you know, mom comes in, it looks like she's in labor and we think we're delivering or the the membranes have ruptured. We we prepare and do a few things that, that are that very clearly have been shown uh, to help the baby. So one of these and probably the most important one is the administration of steroids. Now these uh, you always have to explain when you use the word yeah. steroids. <laughs> uh, baby comes out all bolt up. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're not a buff baby. Right. You're, you're, the the right. Gonna... <laughs> it breaks your arm arm wrestling <laughs> with, with you. Um, so yeah, this is not uh, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger anabolic steroids. That's that's a that's a term that describes a sort of class of chemicals and a bunch of chemicals fall in that category like. Testosterone is a steroid, and and uh, and and estrogen is a steroid. Mm-hmm. These are steroid hormones. So, there are, uh, the two most commonly used steroids are uh, beta methasone and dexamethasone, and there are now decades worth of studies showing that if your baby is born preemie, and if you have received the steroid therapy, your baby does a lot better. It, it really reduces a lot of the complications that preemie babies can have, and it act, and it also increases the likelihood of the baby surviving. And the earlier you deliver, the more important, you know, those steroids uh, are. So that's number one, the, the steroids. How it's, are the steroids given? Yeah. That's, hmm. uh, so they are shots. Injection to the mother. They're injections given into the mother intramuscularly. And um, probably the most common one is beta-methasone, and that's two shots given 24 hours apart. So you, you would try to prevent the baby's arrival until you're able to do that twice. Right. If you can. 24 hours. And if it's again. safe, if to, it's do safe so. to do so. And yeah. in most circumstances it is. Uh, and then the other one is dexamethasone, which is four shots every 12 hours. So oh, wow. basically it's a couple days worth of What's shots. the difference between them? Um, I, th- I think um, there are minor differences, but I think there's a little more data with the beta-methasone. And in my experience, it's just a lot more commonly used. Uh, if the water breaks and you're in that risky period of like 24 to 28 weeks, or even if you're at 28 weeks, does that mean the baby has to come out now? Are there things that you can do to sustain that pregnancy safely and give more time for growth and development? Great question. So, um, you're, so you're, you're, you're playing a balancing game in that situation, uh, because ideally you would like the baby to stay in utero for as long as possible prior to birth. Right. And it is very clear that, you know, the farther you go, we, I mean, we talked about this, the farther you go in pregnancy, the better the outcomes are going to be for the baby. On the other hand, the bag of water, when it's intact, really provides a lot of 
protection to the baby, particularly against infections. Yeah. So once the bag of water has broken, the, this pregnancy is a lot more vulnerable to, um, you know, to infection. And so you're really doing this dance of, the, the, the first answer to your question is no, the baby does not have to deliver immediately. We, we still do try to keep the mom pregnant for as long as safely possible. But you're really watching very, very closely for any hint of infection. And when that happens, then it's time to um, deliver. What are the signs so of infection? The monitoring happens in the hospital. Uh, so she stays in the hospital. She stays in the hospital. And you're looking for things like fever. That's probably the most important uh, sign. Uh, there can be tachycardia, meaning a fast heart rate. And mm -hmm. that could be mother or baby. Okay, if either one gets a rapid heart rate. Yeah, uh, sometimes the mama will develop some uterine tenderness. You know, you're pressing on the uterus and it's just painful. That could be a sign. Um, there are some chemical tests that can be done. You know, some some centers, they will actually test the fluid for bacteria or mm. sugar. Yeah, I was going to say, what type of infection? Or like? various things. It usually is bacterial. Okay. And it's usually multiple organisms, not necessarily, you know, one, one specific. But these specific tests are not, uh, they may happen more in academic centers or certain research centers. In I think in general, uh, it, it's more clinical features rather than any specific um, you know, laboratory test. Would antibiotics be effective? It's very clearly effective. So there, there's a lot of research using antibiotics when the bag of water is broken that it, on average, helps the pregnancy last longer and it reduces the incidence of neonatal infections, meaning infection in the baby after the baby's born or infection in the mom after the pregnancy's over. Mm. So that has been shown to be very helpful. But it's, it's important to clarify that uh, antibiotics have been shown to be helpful if the bag of water is broken. Right. If the bag of water is intact, like let's say you show up and mom's contracting and you find her two centimeters dilated, uh, and antibiotics are not helpful in that scenario. So let's take that situation because then you're less worried about infection with the bag of water is intact. But that was the other, that's the other preterm labor Sometimes. mechanism that you mentioned is contractions can start, the cervix right. can shorten. Um, are there things that you can do then to sort of hold things off longer? There are a whole bunch of medications that 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 kind of suppress contractions and they calm the contractions down. But there are literally hundreds of studies looking at these medications. And overall, if you look at the bulk of, of this literature, what it shows is we do not have the ability to stop or slow preterm birth in any significant kind of way. Really? At the most, we could get 48 hours. But that That's, could give you enough time to give the steroids. Yeah. So it, 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 it could be worthwhile. But, uh, you know, in my mind, I think uh, the basic truth is if a mom is contracting but she's not in labor, mm -hmm. you can suppress those contractions and it sort of makes you feel like you're doing something. <laughs> <laughs> but she was never really in – if she does not deliver, she probably was just never in labor in the first place and was having Braxton con Hicks contractions. Uh -huh. If she is in labor, there's really Nothing. not anything to that it. we can do to um, to stop it. So what we can do is are all these things to benefit the baby in the event that the preterm birth does happen. So the steroids is one – we talked about antibiotics if if the water uh, if the water is broken. There is one 
reason for antibiotics with the bag of waters intact, and that depends on uh, a bacteria called GBS. Mm-hmm. So that's a normal, natural bacteria that lives in the body. It's not an infection. Um, so, some some moms have it. Some moms don't. And some Same is true of dads, but we're not testing. Yeah, dads. we don't care about that. Some pregnancies have it, and some pregnancies some don't. Some pregnancies have way. it, yeah. And you you could have it at the beginning of the pregnancy and not at the end of the pregnancy, or vice versa. We, so really, the when we do a GBS test, we really only consider that valid for about five weeks. Uh, but if you are having a preterm birth and we don't know if you're GBS positive or not, we, we actually do give antibiotics when you are in labor mm-hmm. to protect the baby against GBS. Oh, if so you, in the preterm labor, you haven't had your test yet. Yeah. Because it's normally tested closer to the end. Yeah. Yeah, between 35, 37 weeks. So if at 34 weeks you go into labor, but sometimes if a mom comes into the hospital and we're we're worried that this is preterm labor, very often you'll, where you're supposed to do a GBS test. Mm -hmm. So then with. How long does it take? uh, They have some rapid tests now, uh, but in in general it's about a day or two. And are you testing through blood or how are you? This is a vaginal swab. Yeah. So if it turns out that you're GBS negative, then you would not need those antibiotics in labor, even if you're having a, a preterm birth. Mm-hmm. What are the consequences of not giving the antibiotics if a woman does have GBS? Um, yeah, you guys ask such good questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in women who are colonized with GBS, which is maybe about 25, 30% of women. Interesting they said colonized, but not infection. Yeah, because it's not an infection. You know, I, I, I'm always very careful to have this, it's to like clarify that. Yeah, because, we, you know, you, you start talking about this bacteria and then the moms get all oh worried, like, where did I catch this? <laughs> and, well, from life. Yeah, um, from your colon. So, you know, we're, we, we, we talked about earlier the microbiome, right? There's just bajillions of organisms living all throughout your body. So there's just one of those things. And really nobody cares too much about GBS when you're not pregnant. The only reason we really care in pregnancy is because babies who are born to GBS positive moms can pick it up and get very sick from it. It's about a 2% infection rate. Mm, 2%. So, so let's say you, if you have the GBS moms and you don't treat any of them, you, you'd see a GBS infection in, in about 2% of the babies. 2 out of 100 babies. But, so, that's, so that's good because it's not a super high number, but it can be a very devastating Yeah, what kind of sickness? Condition. I, I mean, you can die from that, uh, mm-hmm. especially if you're you know, a little preemie baby. So you can get pneumonia, you can get Mostly meningitis, you know, it depends on where it gets into this. the system. Is there not a way to, since it's a colonization vaginally, is there not a way to eliminate that colony without killing all of the bacteria in both mother and baby's bloodstream? Because you're talking about IV antibiotics. Right. Yeah, that, so that's the problem with, uh, well, one of the problems with antibiotics is the, the organism that you're interested in is not the only one you kill. kill. And uh, we're becoming, we're increasingly understanding that all the other organisms that are there have a very important role and, it's, and you need them to be healthy and it's bad to get rid of everything. And then sometimes you get secondary infections from from disturbing the balance and like you you can get something that's maybe more minor like a yeast infection all the way up to something that is really devastating and horrible like a C difficile and uh, colitis so you can C diff uh, C diff um, and there um, C diff sounds like a rapper Clostridium I think it is a rapper I have his no first way. album <laughs> no I'm just kidding oh <laughs> 
<laughs> Does your mouth about um, <laughs> So, yeah, it would be ideal if we could just hit the bacteria of, of interest. And um, you, there, there, there is an issue of choosing antibiotics well because there are some that are narrower spectrum that, that just kind of target a little more specifically what you're after, and some are broader spectrum. And I think so one of the things we should be doing is for GBS just using penicillin because it's much more narrower spectrum. Mm-hmm. So I think it causes less disruption. And But uh, what I have found is uh, very commonly people will use ampicillin, mm-hmm. which is more – it's a broader <laughs> spectrum and it has more issues with, with resistance. What about people who use garlic? <laughs> I'm not kidding. They, they, they the insert – No, cloves. Cloves oh. of garlic vaginally just to – because it's so antimicrobial. Yeah. You what? know, I, I think that um, in medicine, we need to become more open-minded moving into the future about alternatives besides the medicines that we have historically used. Because we're, we're uh, you know, on the one hand, these antibiotics have saved a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. And we, we must be incredibly grateful sure. for the existence of these antibiotics. But on the other hand, everything that we use has the flip side. And there are the complications and there are the side effects. And uh, the other problem we're running into is having so much resistance. The day may come where we've got bugs that we can't treat with antibiotics because there's so much resistance around. So, um it, so I think we need to start thinking about other alternatives like, you know, nutritional interventions or probiotic interventions yeah. or different things. We've got to have more than just antibiotics and and um, uh, we really have to minimize the use of antibiotics as much as possible. So I really like your question. However, I don't know any scientific literature about garlic. So how effective <laughs> it is and how mm-hmm. much it works, I just do don't do know the it? answer. Yeah. I've never how heard do you that. use it? Yeah. yeah. When and what's yeah, the just, dose? I mean, and, I wish there was yeah. more research on it, but nobody's yeah. going to make a lot of money I, I really selling think we should... GBS garlic. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I have a few more questions, especially uh, some that were submitted by the listener who asked us to do this topic. First of all, she wrote that uh, she felt her daughter kick. The baby was breech, and then right after that, her water broke. Do mm-hmm. can babies kick the sack uh, into rupture? I don't believe so. You don't think so? Because because um, uh, well, first of all, almost all women talk about how vigorously their babies kick mm-hmm. uh, to the degree that it's painful and it bothers them. It's very uncomfortable. And, you know, there's this little human in there squirming around, <laughs> and the farther you go in pregnancy, um, you know, it just gets stronger and stronger. And and we just don't see that causing the bag of water to break. The other thing that uh, is interesting, if sometimes we will intentionally break the bag of water during labor mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. It could be for different reasons. And so the way you do it is you put your fingers into the vagina, into the cervix. You can feel the bag of waters on your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And then you have this little plastic hook that you insert up into the cervix and you use it to, to kind of pop, pop a little bit water. of hole. Yeah. Sometimes... <laughs> It ain't easy. It's hard to do. And you really kind of have to dig in there. But that makes me wonder if sometimes it's too easy. Like, can the sack be thinner and weaker or stronger and healthier? Right, exactly. So, Are um, there nutritional things you can do to give yourself a healthy, strong sack? That I don't know about. Okay. Um, So so in terms of nutrition, I would just say the stuff that we already know Mm -hmm. about eating healthy – you know, do stick it. to that kind of mm-hmm. do it and and exercise, um, but I think there are in utero processes that can happen that kind of degrade or weaken the sac. Mm-hmm. So this could be 
chronic bleeding that's causing some inflammation uh-huh. and you know it's activating some uh, some metabolic cascade and enzymes and things that are sort of weakening the bag over the time uh, there could be inflammation from organisms that are in there or you know this quote unquote infection uh, so like there are probably the circumstances tract infections um well, it's kind of all related because, uh, you know, all these systems are very, they're kind of in the same neighborhood, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. organisms that are in the intestine can get into the vagina, can get into the bladder. and um, But so I think if the bag of waters breaks easily, that means that something was going on, happening to weaken it, and it really is just inevitable in a, in a, in a matter of time. Um. When somebody's had preterm labor, either because not iatrogenically, but if if her water broke or contraction started, natural purposes. Yeah, are there any other things? I mean, are there medical things that you do to try to prevent preterm labor from occurring a second time? Even though you said statistically her odds are pretty good. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's definitely uh, there's definitely things. The and before we move on to that, let me just mention one last intervention, sure. which is IV magnesium. Oh yeah. So when you're when you're preparing for preterm birth, we talked about steroids, we talked about antibiotics. Magnesium is a third thing. So magnesium, and this is given through an IV infusion. They give it to your IV. For some women, it really does not feel good. It kind of makes you flushed and headache, blurry vision. It can be sort of unpleasant, especially the first few minutes where they're loading it. Uh, But it was used historically to prevent preterm birth because it's, you know, it's been shown to kind of slow down the contractions a little bit. But again, when you really look at the literature of this, we haven't won that war. We haven't Mm -hmm. really successfully stopped preterm birth. But somebody noticed then in the pregnancies where there was exposure to magnesium, less of these kids developed cerebral palsy. And on the basis of this observation, uh, several studies have been done in different countries around the world where they actually tested this theory, and they specifically gave moms IV magnesium uh, with the planned purpose of looking at the effect on cerebral palsy, and it has kind of panned out. And it's been shown that that reduces the risk of cerebral palsy in the baby about 30%. The cerebral amazing. palsy being a risk of preterm labor? No, cerebral palsy is a condition that the child would have after birth, and it's a movement disorder where you maybe are not able to coordinate your hand movements very well or your legs very well. And you can have a mild version of cerebral palsy where maybe you kind of walk around with a limp. Mm-hmm. or a more severe version where maybe you need crutches to get, to get around, or the more severe form, you might even be wheelchair-bound. So, but what is the cause of it? That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> okay, we'll do another <laughs> podcast an on that. But, but in relation to this, is it because earlier, of the preterm labor? Let's just say that. The earlier okay. you deliver, the more likely. that comes with some additional okay. risk of Because I'm just wondering, why don't we give everybody yeah. magnesium so, and yeah. labor? Yeah. Um, so the earlier you deliver, that's that's one of the things that 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 some kids will have as a consequence of having been more, born early is cerebral palsy later in life. So the IV magnesium has been shown to cut that risk by about thirty percent. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a nutritional element. Yeah. yeah. So th- that's kind of I think yeah the the bulk of what we do in preparation for a preterm birth. Now what you just asked me was oh preventing the second preterm birth. So. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, – in general, in obstetric circles, the conversation is limited 
to progesterone, but I think you really want to kind of take a holistic approach and think about a lot of things like, you know, the, the, the mental health of the mom and, and, and stress and anxiety. Maybe she was in an abusive relationship. What was the nutritional status like? How much weight did she gain in the first pregnancy? Let's look at that in the se- second pregnancy. So I think really kind of looking at the whole picture is important. But from a medical point of view, um, uh, those women should have their cervix looked at with ultrasound between 20 and 24 weeks. There's some people who argue that every woman should have her cervix looked at, not just the ones with uh, a prior or preterm birth. So that's kind of a an ongoing debate within our country. But How reliable is the shortened cervix to a correlation with preterm labor? Um, it's a risk factor. Okay. Because so, I just wonder... My sense is if you check everybody at 24 weeks, we're going to have a whole lot more women on bed rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's why everything is a double-edged sword. But nobody should end up on bed rest, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But, but you will identify more women with the short cervix, which will create some interventions, will create some anxiety. And you'll have some women who are very stressed out during their pregnancy who they're didn't, destined didn't to deliver a to term. Yeah. And don't need to go through it. So, I mean, there are downsides. There's always downsides of testing everybody. It sounds but like I think you're not cer- a fan of bed rest. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm absolutely opposed to bed rest. So if you find a shortened cervix at 24 weeks, So I used to do bed rest because, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a trained uh, OBGYN, and that's what we were trained to do. Um, but this is one of those interventions that is done just because it kind of makes sense. You know, I think there's some things that we have always observed in pregnancy. We've always observed miscarriages. We've always observed preterm births. And I think it creates this kind of sense that pregnancy is sort of a delicate um, state. Mm-hmm. And, and and so I think bed rest is just kind of a logical extension of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never done because there was a study that proved that if you did bed rest, your chance of successful pregnancy outcome is higher. That 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 study does not exist. And in fact... Now that we're more into studies and evidence-based medicine and asking the question, all the stuff we're doing, does it actually work? Uh, There was a a study that came out a few years ago where they looked at women with shortened cervix. So these are women at increased risk of preterm birth. And they put them into categories depending on what they were told as far as activity. Hmm. And so there was a range of restrictions. Some women were put on complete bed rest. Some women were told, well, don't do complete bed rest, but just kind of take it easy. Uh, some, some women were told, you know, avoid intercourse. And then there were some women that were given no restrictions whatsoever. The women that had the lowest percentage of preterm birth were the women that were given no restrictions really? whatsoever. Wow. Is the sense that they just trusted their instincts or they just they business as usual? They also have peace of mind. So that's exactly what the authors of the paper said. Uh, so first of all, I think we don't know the answer. We, uh-huh. There's an observation, and so now the question is, well, why is that? And what the authors of this paper said, well, maybe when you put people on bed rest, you create this notion that they're fragile fragile, and at high risk for delivery, and now they're just intensely um, stressed. So maybe that was part of it. Another idea that has crossed my mind is um, – Maybe when you are immobile, you're no longer exercising the pelvic floor. You know, maybe mm. moving around 
it keeps your pelvis strong, and so you lay in bed and everything weakens, and you know you're more likely to have a preterm birth. That's Who knows? Also, Who knows? circulation, because I see very active people put on bed rest for this reason, mm-hmm. and the circulation just goes from very active to very inactive. Yeah, and it, you know it's it's, it's incredibly painful. Bed rest. Yeah, if you see women who've been on, on bed rest for the whole pregnancy, like, like they're back pain. I mean, it's terrible. It's yeah. horrible. I see that. Yeah, totally, yeah, we see them. totally deconditioned. <laughs> That's what happens. The, it increases the risk of them getting you know blood clots in mm-hmm. their legs or lungs, and uh, so you know there's there's no studies out there that shows that it's helpful. There are now some studies suggesting that maybe it's even increases your chance of preterm birth, and then there's all these other harms. Not to mention the economic harms, you know, taking somebody off of work. For some sure. families, that is a huge uh, problem. There may be child care issues. They got some other kids at home. Uh, so uh, the American College of OBGYN has actually come out and formally said we should no longer be routinely prescribing bed rest. And yet, how often do I see that happening? All the time. Every uh, single day. Yeah. yeah but, uh, it's just old habits die hard. Gosh, I have so many more questions and not that much more time. We need a part You're going to have to come back. <laughs> uh, these are the two questions that I have in my mind that I want to address. One is you mentioned progesterone as a way to potentially manage uh, or prevent preterm labor in a woman who's already had it, so mm-hmm. in her subsequent pregnancies. And then the other one was the cerclage. Yeah. Okay, so progesterone is given in different ways and in different circumstances. So one way it's given is injected. So this is called 17-hydroxyprogesterone, and you get an injection once a week. And there were studies done on women who had a prior history of preterm birth. You start them somewhere between 16 and 20 weeks, and they get a they get the shot once a week all the way out to 36 weeks. That's the last one, and then they graduate. Mm-hmm. And uh, the studies have shown that it decreases the chance of having a preterm birth by about 30 40%. So these are women wow, who've amazing. had a preterm birth before. Um, so just based on your history, you become a candidate. You can automatically have that. Is it a shot she does at home, or she has to go in and have it done? Uh, that'll depend on the scenario. Okay. Yeah, so it's done but both roughly ways. twenty shots through the pregnancy. Yeah, so that would that you would work out, you know, with your with your uh, with your care provider. Does there it go have into been fatty tissue, or what do you like? You know, it's intramuscular. Okay. Yeah. So like glute. Mm-hmm. And there have been subsequent studies of starting a little bit later, between twenty four, between twenty and twenty four weeks, mm-hmm. that have shown actually that it's helpful. So even if you start late, it's good. If you start too late, like there's studies showing starting after 28 weeks makes no difference. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. At that point, that your destiny is your destiny. Okay. So it needs to start at the appropriate time. The other way to give progesterone is vaginally. Suppositories. And this is usually done. There's there are suppositories. There are, there are gels. Oh, okay. gel. Um, so this is usually done if you identify somebody with the short cervix. And different studies have used different cutoffs, 1.5 centimeters, 2 centimeters. I think in, in general, what, what, what we're now saying is a community of MFMs, if your cervix is less than 2 centimeters, you're a candidate for vaginal progesterone. Uh, it's, it it's probably works a little better than the weekly ingested progesterone if you have a short cervix. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the shots is for women with a prior history of preterm birth, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The vaginal progesterone is if you have a short cervix with or without a prior history. It could be your first pregnancy. If they happen to find your cervix short. How often do you get the? Once a day. One, oh, daily. It's daily. Okay. Yeah. Cerclage. Cerclage. Um, 
There's three scenarios in which you use that. Um, one is history indicated. So that means you've had a mid-trimester pregnancy loss um, in the past. Um, now, this is interesting. It used to be that the studies only show this to be beneficial for women who've lost three pregnancies. Okay. The most recent guidelines are saying if you've had one that looks like cervical insufficiency, you're a candidate for surclar. So that's based on your history. So if you've, if you've had a mid-trimester pregnancy loss, your next pregnancy, you can have a surclage placed. Usually it'll be like 12 to 14 weeks. Okay. That's a history indicator. How do you do it? Uh, you usually go to the operating room because you would not be able to tolerate this being done in the office. You get a spinal, so there's a little shot in the spine. It puts you numb from the waist down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put your feet up into the stirrups, kind of like when you're getting a pap smear. A speculum into the vagina so you could see the cervix. And then you take a suture, and there's different types of sutures that are used, but you basically stitch around the cervix, and you tie a little knot. So it's, you basically have a string around the cervix, but it's stitched in place. Like stitching you it closed. stitches, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> stitching it closed. And then when do you take it out? You either take it out toward the end of pregnancy, like maybe in the neighborhood of 36 weeks, if all's going well, or if mom shows up in preterm labor, the surclage is not going to keep the baby in there. In fact, it's just going to tear it through the cervix. Mm. So if mom looks like she's in labor, you're going to remove the surclage. Is it it's, painful to take it yeah, out? The painful thing is the speculum. It's not mm-hmm. the removal of the stitch. Yeah, so is it painful? Yes, no woman likes to have a speculum placed. And in, in my experience during pregnancy, it seems to be worse than when you're not mm-hmm. pregnant. More sensitive. Okay, so that was the history indicated. So exam indicated, what that means is uh, if you're looking at a woman's cervix with vaginal ultrasound and is deemed to be short, meaning less than 2.5 centimeters, and she has a history of a prior preterm birth, that has been shown to be a scenario in which the cerclage is helpful to the pregnancy. And there's about five studies that, that have led to this conclusion. So, oh, wow. so prior history of preterm birth and your cervix is short, you are a candidate for cerclage. It's, it's, it's usually not placed any time after 24 weeks. Why so is that? It's, um, that's a long answer. Okay. Uh, and it's it's sort of value-laden. Um, but, but that's kind of the current uh, standard, uh, that it should be placed prior to 24 weeks. So you'd measure the cervix earlier? Right. And we, we said usually you're checking it somewhere between 20 and 24. 20 and 24. Right? So if you see it at 20 and she has the history. Yeah. Uh, and then the final type of cerclage is, is what's called... Um, uh, I'm sorry, that was the ultrasound-indicated cerclage. The, the exam-indicated cerclage means her cervix is actually dilated. Okay. You found the cervix dilated. And at I'll give you one example. Weeks? Let's say she comes in at 20 weeks, thinks everything's fine, has had zero symptoms, and shows up for her 20-week ultrasound. You're looking at the baby. They point the ultrasound to the cervix, and whoa, cervix is open. And and you find it's, it's dilated. Uh, so... Whether you've had a preterm birth or not, you can have a discussion about having a surclage placed in that scenario. In general, if you are found to have your cervix dilated in mid-pregnancy, on average, the duration of that pregnancy is going to be about three weeks. Mm-hmm. So obviously, some women will deliver sooner than that. Some women, their pregnancy will last longer than that, but on average, about three weeks. Mm-hmm. If you look at multiple studies about cerclage and what the outcomes are, 
it seems to be that you get about seven weeks of pregnancy if you place a cerclage, hmm. if, if the cervix is open. Sure. So, so it, it seems that on average, if you place a cerclage with an open cervix, your pregnancy will last a little bit longer. And again, that's an average. You could place a cerclage and deliver the next day. Um, yeah, we and we see lots of pregnancies that go well beyond you know seven weeks with the cerclage. So the seven weeks is just sort of an average. Do does she feel it after? It's so you placed? don't feel the placement because of the spinal. Right. Um, I have some moms that say they don't feel anything, and some just kind of feel a little nagging something. And I wonder if maybe they're feeling the knot down there. Mm-hmm. So there may there may be some sensation associated with it, but it's usually not um, anything unbearable or really bad. Dr. Shabir, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. It was fun. for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us. We hope to have you back real soon. On cerebral palsy. Anytime. We, yeah. On a we don't have one of topics. Yeah. But also, <laughs> we're going to bring you over to our sister show on YouTube, The Real Midwives of Los Angeles, which you can find at therealmidwives.com. Cool. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. Share us with your friends and visit us on informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you.